Well, it is, as always, a pleasure to be here, to have the Word of God, to have the people of God. Um, it is certainly an encouragement to me even this morning. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. <clears throat> and take my jacket off today. I didn't quite expect uh, 90 degrees on the first Sunday in September, and uh, corduroy, not, I, I guess I just broke it out a couple of weeks too early for this fall, so that's a little bit warm. Um, John 11, so we were in here last week and we talked at length about this reality of what is going to be happening with the story of Lazarus. Now, it's going to take us several weeks to cover this story because there's so many details in it. We got to walk through the reality of Jesus waiting, uh, his patience, and then his uh, continuing uh, on into Bethany. And then we, uh, we find a very unusual reference of Thomas there, one of my favorite characters, because in Thomas I get to see myself uh, quite a bit, uh, where one day everything is going well and you have all this faith and encouragement and say, let's go with Jesus and die with him. And then the next time you're going, uh, unless I see things and verify them for myself, I have a hard time believing them. Uh, that, that is a disciple I can well understand, and that's where we finished off last time in verse 16. Today we get to pick up with Jesus' arrival to Bethany and his first discussion with Martha. Uh, Martha is a fascinating character in and of herself, but our main focus here today, uh, and you could do this any which way when you come to this passage, but our main focus today is going to be Jesus' statement about himself. I am the resurrection and the life. This doesn't leave room much for interpretation. Uh, it is one of the plain statements that Jesus makes of himself in the Gospel of John, and it's something that is, uh, that is central to the very message of John, which we have on the screen every single week that we're here, is that you, reader, may believe and live. So let's come to it. Verses 17 through 27. Let's stand in honor of God and his word as we walk through that. <clears throat> John 11 17 through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, not in the future tense, but in the present, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we too believe this. When we see Christ, we see the very imprint, the exact imprint of your nature. We see your loving heart and we see your clear truth. 
Father, we pray that you open our eyes this morning to the truth of your word. We see in it things that are difficult and things that are simple. We pray that we do not focus on one at the expense of the other. We pray, Father, for a delightfulness this morning as we open your word, that it would delight our hearts and our minds. We pray that we would seek to understand what your word means and walk with you accordingly. We pray all this, Father, in your Son's name. We know the power does not reside in us, but in you. We pray this in his name, therefore. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. <coughs> Would it be too much for someone to grab me a bottle of water or something? I'm going to lose my voice about five minutes from now. I can feel it already. Thank you. <coughs> Either that or we can just all pause and I can just go get some water. Either way. John 11 is one of the most fascinating chapters in the Bible, uh, and I say that unreservedly. Uh, there's, there's a lot of them, uh, but John 11 holds a real special place because if, there's, <clears throat> if there is ever a, thank you very much, if there is ever a story that anyone could possibly pull out of their head when it comes to the miracles of Jesus, you would definitely get the feeding of the 5,000, but almost anyone, even if they didn't go to church, is aware of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The, the, the focus of this story and the central aspect that it takes in, in John's gospel is the culmination of all the signs that John has written about so far. And if you're not aware of the structure of John, we're sitting right at the center of his gospel, very important in their society about what happens at the center of a story. And it's this transition point where Jesus makes his final approach to Jerusalem, his final miracle, and then everything goes to the upper room, which is... Almost the rest of the book of John is going to happen in the upper room. Uh, most people don't realize that almost seven chapters are just Jesus speaking to his disciples on the night he was betrayed. And so <clears throat> as we approach all of this, John is bringing everything that came before it to its culmination point and saying, then who is Jesus? And why, why, reader, should you trust in him? Why should you place your faith on him? Why is he worthy of that? And so built into that are his identities, built into that are his abilities, and all of them are on display in chapter 11. And so as we walk through this, know that that's sitting behind everything that we're talking about, even if I don't say it explicitly. John chapter 11, verse 17. Let's kind of get into this, right? Because we left off of this story uh, of this almost bizarre waiting Jesus spent two days waiting. Even if he had left immediately, Lazarus would have already been in the tomb for two days. And so there wasn't, there wasn't a way that uh, upon receiving the news of Lazarus' passing, there wasn't a way for Jesus to even get there before he died because it happened after the fact. But the reality is, and we talked about this, Jesus was fully aware that this was going to happen when he befriended Lazarus to begin with. None of this was a surprise, and you get to start learning this as John reveals more and more and more about the character of Jesus, is that as a reader, you're sitting here and appreciating the reality that Martha is actually right. If Jesus was there, he could have prevented this. In fact, Jesus didn't even have to be there to prevent this. We've seen Jesus heal from a distance. We've seen him do all manner of things, controlling the winds and the waves, We've seen him controlling the physical world in ways that are not normal. 
We've seen supernormal things happening all around him. And so one of the questions kind of sits in our mind is the same with Martha. You can actually, in, in today's passage, you can side alongside Martha and go, her perspective makes perfect sense. I can certainly say that for me. If my experience was to be a personal friend of Jesus in his ministry, and I've seen him heal thousands of people, literally entire cities, while just standing at the doorpost, we see that happen in one of the uh, synoptic gospels, where he just goes and the entire city is there in front of him. He heals every single sickness in the city at one moment, right outside Peter's mother-in-law's house. We see these things happen. Martha has witnessed these things. Jesus has done them. And these things have even happened in Bethany, in their hometown. Imagine the confusion. He's healed all these other people, but Lazarus, one of his best friends, dies. And Martha and Mary, his sisters, who are also personal friends of Jesus, when they call for him, he delays his coming. It's confusing, isn't it? It's almost actually understandably frustrating because it seems that Jesus does not care so much about what's going on with them. And Martha is flabbergasted at that, confused at that. And while it doesn't say it explicitly, I'm sure Mary is as well. She just stays home and doesn't go out to greet him. I'm not going to read into what her thoughts were. I have no idea. But what Martha thinks, she says straight off. Let's get into it. Verse 17. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been already in the tomb for four days. We talked at length about the importance of the four days last week. The reality that uh, the culture in which they lived imagined that any resurrection happening three days and less would have been a resuscitation. It would not have been a resurrection. And so four days is actually providentially important. He had been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off to the south. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And here's the first point. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Let's stop there, halfway through her statement. Is there anything wrong with what she says? I don't hear anything wrong. I hear full faith. I hear fully recognizing his power, his ability, and his love of Lazarus, which is clearly attested to in the text, also with the presence of Jesus there. He did not go to many funerals. Here he is at one of them. She comes up and says this thing to him, if only you'd been here, almost with a, uh, a focus on the circumstances have overwhelmed this situation. If only you had been here, if only your travel arrangements had been different, then this would have happened. Think about this for a second. Think about it. John, when he is writing this gospel, is writing to Christians that have never seen Jesus face to face. Okay? There are people that will be reading this in the very first generation that he is writing to that experience life and the sufferings of this life without the immediate presence of Jesus day in and day out. You can imagine some of the things that walked around, some of the thoughts that uh, rattled around the early church. 
When Jesus left, the level of healings and the amount of them went down significantly. The apostles did some of them, but even that as way of normal life in the church. By the time the writing of the Gospel of John had already dissipated significantly. You can imagine, and the writings do indicate this, that people in the early church were wondering if Jesus was still around, if he would still be healing people. The same question would have been in their minds, wouldn't it have? Because this is being written about 50 years after the happenings here. And there are people in the church who say about our age, so we're all about 50 or younger, right? So when we're... we're, Except you, Ralph. So as they're looking at it, they've never experienced walking around with Jesus and him healing people randomly on the side of the street. They read about it. They read about these happenings and wonder, how is it different than our situation? We read it and have the same interaction, don't we? Even to, the, even to the sense that some Christians imagine that the Christian life would be much better if Jesus was still walking around the world. Despite what Jesus says to the contrary. We would wonder the same thing of Martha. I'll tell you, sometimes I've wondered it myself. If the Lord was actually still here, would this suffering be in my life? Would this sickness overtake somebody I love? Or would Jesus have healed them? He would have had the ability to. The question doesn't go away only with his presence, does it? We understand Jesus to be aware of everything, not only just aware, but directing everything. And so the question still sits in our mind, doesn't he? Why in our sicknesses and sufferings does not healing happen all the time? And Martha is frustrated about this, understandably so. But listen to her understanding of who he is. Verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, meaning the Father, he will give it to you. That is an incredible statement for a woman who has never seen him raise someone from the dead. It's an incredible statement to say, If you were here, he wouldn't have died. Now you're here, and I know you have the ability to do much more than that. I don't know what it will be. Resurrection isn't exactly what she is asking for because she still seems to be confused when Jesus says he will rise again. What she is asking for, she's not even entirely sure. I know that there's value in your presence here regardless. So essentially, do what you will. Ask God what you will. And so Jesus gives her a consolation that every Christian ought to give to every other Christian that loses another Christian. They will rise again. Every single funeral I have ever given for a Christian, I have mentioned that promise. Not because I have nothing else to say, but because that is all the hope wrapped up in one. They will rise again. And when they rise again, they will be without their sin. Thanks to God for that. I think the worst thing that I could ever imagine would be to be raised again in this body with these habits, disappointing myself and those I love on a daily basis, sometimes hourly, it depends on the week, for eternity. 
Could you imagine? And so Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Listen to this wonderful theology come out of her mouth. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus turns wonderful theology and good healthy faith into perhaps one of the greatest teaching mechanisms in all of his ministry. And John uses it as the center point. Jesus looks at her and the response to what she says, he doesn't disagree with her. But what he does say is, I am the resurrection and the life. We're going to take each of these statements one by one because they are so significant to the author uh, to include for his readers. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Present tense. Jesus takes her future hope and connects it right back to where they're standing in Bethany at the moment. For anyone who's ever lost another Christian, while there is hope and there is comfort in the resurrection that is coming at the last day, you know that that hope and that comfort is still stymied by this horrible thing we call time. My family used to live in South America. And so when I would see them and say goodbye, I would know it would usually be for a year or two years. And that was hard. And that kind of broke my heart every single time it happened because that time thing that we can't control makes distance and the sadness of relationship for a time just difficult. And so when my, when my parents would leave, when my siblings would leave, and they would all live in Chile for several years, and then I would see them again, and then it would be, after a week, it would be another year, two years, three years. And those of you who have family that live far away know the feeling. It's the same when we lose somebody to death but multiplied many times over. It's a distance that we can't bridge, and it's a time whose distance we can't shrink in any way. We are all built into time, and we can't control that. And so while she expresses this hope, she expresses it in a very normal Christian way. I know that he will rise again. I know it's not hopeless. I know the tomb is not the end of the story, But I still miss him. I know, and that consoles for a time. I know that he will rise again on the resurrection on the last day, but this today is not the last day. Jesus doesn't even commend her for knowing reality or even for her faith. He actually gives her something brand new and says it's not about the resurrection just being a mere event at the end of time. Don't you understand? I am the resurrection. Not I am capable of carrying out the resurrection, not I am able to carry out the resurrection today, not I can give life I am life, and I am the resurrection. What do you suppose he means by this? 
Why is it that all of these things are dependent on Christ? Why is it that John is writing all of these things? What kind of life do we have when we believe on Christ? Because here he appends it directly to that. He says it in the same sentence there. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. Is he merely talking about the eternal state on the last day? Or did he bring everything right into the present and give us a remarkable promise? Even though somebody believes in me dies, they are still alive. You ever lost a Christian close to you? From our perspective, they are dead, yes? From Christ's, no. They are not. Neither are they merely sleeping. They are alive with him. This is exactly how the scriptures spell this out. And Christ here is introducing them to it. Remember, there's no New Testament written at the time that Jesus is saying these things. They are having to learn this stuff in real time. And John, writing after most of the New Testament is written, is reminding his readers of this. This is a promise given to us by Christ himself at the pinnacle of his ministry. What sickness is as incurable as death? None. It's the worst of them all. If you're a doctor and you're trying to prevent somebody from dying by treating their illness and they end up dying, there's a failure on your part, yes? On some level, obviously. We have limitations in what we can do. Sicknesses that lead unto death like this, as Jesus is expressing to them, this is the not only the most impossible of healings to do, it's something that unless God is doing it, it cannot happen. I don't care how far our advancements in technology go, you do not return somebody back from the dead. Not like this. Not when they're well gone. And Martha knew this. And here's the thing, so did Jesus. And he is expressing it to them in a very tactile way and something that I should be better at in funerals for Christians. Something that in preparing this sermon really challenged some of the ways I even refer to the resurrection. Leaving it entirely into the future is an overstatement of what Jesus here is saying. He says, I am that. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am not the God only of the dead. I am the God of the living. Abraham and Elijah and every person who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and has trusted in the Lord of Israel is alive and with him. Even though they die, yet they're alive. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You say, that doesn't seem to comport to our experience, does it? I thought you just said Christians die. They do. What he's expressing is that when we are absent from the body, death for a Christian is completely different than death for an unbeliever. 
This is what John is driving us to. Death for an unbeliever, that's it. Not it as far as experience. That's it until the judgment. For the believer to be absent from the body, which is how Paul describes death, is to be present with the Lord. There is no interruption in life. Even until the resurrection. It doesn't mean we lose the intimidation factor of death. Death is a terrifying thing because it's so unnatural. Death is not a natural part of the creation. Death was something that came into it, remember? And so Jesus expresses to it, the one who believes in me shall never die. And he looks at her and he says this, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let us think about this for a moment. Of all the things for God to send his gospel with, why believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is the determiner between life and death? You see, we know it from Sunday school. We know it from sermons gone by. Have we ever stopped to think, why is it that mechanism, of all mechanisms, does God intend to save his people? We can say this, and it's the central thesis of all the Gospel of John, that you may believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and have life in his name. Why that? Why couldn't it just be that you obey his words and all things work out well, and then you will live. Right? That's what the law said. Do these things, and you will live. Do them not, and you will die. Why belief? Have you ever sat down to wonder it? I hope so, because I'm going to answer that question. And if not, ask the question of yourself and think about it for a second. I'm okay with a little bit of silence in here. Why belief? You see, this is something that Christians in our culture have a real hard time with, broadly. It is the exclusivity of Christ. He is true, and nobody else is. It's one of those claims in the gospel that we simply must preach along with the evangelism of the gospel. It is not that you can just add Christ to your life, and all will be well. Nope. It is life in his name and in no other name, not even yours. It is that the claim to purpose and resurrection and righteousness and salvation is 100% in his name, not in ours. It is the essence of faith. We are born with this innate concept of faith in self and faith in parents, and wherever good things flow. We understand that if somebody feeds us a bottle when we're like six months old, that that's something to place our faith in. I'll rely on them to provide food, 
provide sustenance and all these things. As we grow up a little bit more, we start calling them mom and dad. Everything makes a little bit more sense to us. We don't necessarily question every single thing that goes on. When my three-year-old is, you know, interacting with the world and I say, let's get in the car, she doesn't say, um, excuse me, what path are we taking? How are we getting there? Do you have your driver's license? My six-year-old does that. My three-year-old doesn't. Because as we grow up more and more, we start losing our trust and our faith in the things that we first had trust and faith in. We reach the pinnacle to that in our teenage years, where we think our parents now, who used to know everything, now know nothing. And then we start to think, well, maybe I know everything. And then we reach our 20s. How many of you passed through all of these stages? We reach our 20s. Oh, my goodness, I know nothing. Nobody knows anything. Then you get into your 30s. Nobody ever can know anything. When you I haven't reached that stage yet, but uh, I would say I'm looking forward to it, but I don't know. <laughs> when you forget everything, right. Jesus uses this in our life to help us see how salvation works. Because salvation is fully dependent on him for all of this, everything. And there's some of us that like to come to Jesus and go, full faith in you, how did this, I'm just curious, how exactly does that work? And do you have your driver's license? Some of us are a little more nosy like this. Do we have this all worked out? How does it work? All this is, but I, I love Christians who have a gift of simple faith in Christ. They teach other Christians without even knowing it or intending it. A a woman that passed away recently is is someone that I I, um, respected her prayer life in such a way that I, I said to her often, her name was Ruth, and I don't know that I'll ever forget her. The way that she just prayed and I said this to her often. I said, I've, it, it, it wasn't with flowery language or anything. It was like me talking to a, a lifelong friend of mine. Some, something that had been developed with her through the decades and decades of her life. Of a dependence on God. Where if I asked her to sit down and write a paper on describing prayer, it probably wouldn't be very good. And she'd be the first one to tell you that. But I learned more about prayer praying with her than all the seminary classes I ever took, combined. That that just clean dependence on Christ is, is what salvation is defined by. It's how it comes to us. The whole point of it is that we fully depend on God to accomplish these things, not ourselves. The faith of these does not reside in us. Think about this. Death maxes us out completely, doesn't it? Even in the, even in the modern world. We, we tend to think of the healings of Christ on one level and resurrection on a whole other level because we've been able to heal so many different diseases. It's almost commonplace to us. When we look at something, we say, look at this. I mean, just, I mean we even use the terminology when, when something happens in the medical world as a miracle. What, what a thing. What a thing to be able to accomplish. But in right respects, that's not a miracle. A miracle is something that cannot happen in the natural world. Death shows us that. 
And Jesus uses this opportunity, and John uses the story to teach his readers the same thing that Jesus is here teaching Martha. Death doesn't stop this either. For the Christian, death is not good news. Death is still the enemy. Don't get it mixed up. Death is not good news. But in Christ, death becomes another passage of all of this. It is not the end of the story. Not by a long shot. In fact, the smallest part of our story has only just been wrapped up. So he expresses this nature of it as she has just lost her brother only less than a week beforehand. And he uses this to explain the nature of salvation. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So let's go back to that question. Why belief? Well, that's very good, yes. Think about it in the terms of a baby and it'll be a little bit clearer. What if a baby comes out as a skeptic? Think about it. What sense would that make? If a baby came out and goes, um, I'm not going to take that bottle until I verify all the ingredients in it. I want to make sure the formula company's got everything lined up and all the ducks in a row and they did all of their research and uh, there's no BPA in my bottle and all this other stuff, right? How much nourishment would that kid ever get? Well, let's ask the question, how much knowledge does this kid have to verify all of this stuff? As much as we have at salvation, very, very, very little. It's through long walking with the Lord that we start learning such things. And the more we learn about God, the more we learn he is worthy of our trust and our dependence. Some of us have to, because of our sinful pride, I would actually imagine, some of us have to learn a lot more about God before we will actually put our trust in him. And so, some of you, my wife is like this. <laughs> Sorry, sweetie. My wife is like this. She became a Christian at five years old. That breaks my mind. And for a long time, it confused me because that is not my experience at all. I had to become a Christian when I was 11 and, in my mind, was able to think through things. And then one of my daughters became a Christian at five. And it broke my brain again. Because here I see God working in people who can barely address the issues at hand. And I'm still struggling to try to verify the very first parts of the gospel. And it made me feel about this big. Because it's, it's a remarkable gift that God does. And in no way am I saying this person's on that pedestal or that person, none of that stuff. Just to say, God in his wisdom chooses to save people in different stages of life for his own good glory and pleasure. And thank God that he does it. Because what a remarkable thing that nowhere in here is to say, if you believe in me by the age of seven, or if you believe in me by the age of 25, all your life will go this way or that. None of these things. He makes a broad statement about the nature of true life. Because in him, he says, I am the resurrection, present tense. I am the life. If somebody dies trusting in me, they are not dead. They are with me. 
there are some times, and any of you who have lost someone close to you, you know what I mean when I say this. There are some times that I am sorrowful that I have lost my mother. There are some times where I am curious as to what she is experiencing right now. And I find that almost both of them are unanswerable in their fullest extent to a place where I would be satisfied with the answer because I'm the kid in the back seat going, Dad, did you bring your driver's license? <laughs> I want to verify that stuff. I want to see it with my own eyes. And, and if there's anything more annoying about the Christian life, it's that we see through a glass dimly and I'm so curious about the other side. And Jesus doesn't give us all the answers. He just says, the one who believes in me, though they die, they're alive. When they're absent from their body, they're present with me. They have entrusted their soul to their creator. The way I hear it in my mind, stop asking questions. And just trust that I've got it. Why does it depend on faith? Because everything Every gift from God depends on it. God gives us faith to trust him so that all the glory of salvation goes to him and none of it goes to us. God would be glorified in the way that we are saved. How is it we are saved? We learn that as he sends his apostles into the world and they clarify the gospel for us, we learn it very expressly that God is about to make him sin on the cross who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Those of you who are in Sunday school, we read that this morning. We are actually capable now of receiving the righteousness of God because he received our sins. And so our claim to eternal life is not based on what we have accomplished or the work of our hands. Our claim to eternal life is the person of Christ and his work, his hands, quite literally. And so he establishes this back for her and asks if she believes all this. And isn't it remarkable, her response? What a woman. Listen to this. Yes, Lord, she doesn't say, I believe that you are capable of carrying out the resurrection. I believe that Lazarus is with you. I believe that all of this is it. No. What does she say? I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That is no small thing for her to say. That's no small thing for her to recognize. And in certain circles, it would have her put to death for blasphemy. Same reason why Jesus was about to be put to death. I believe that you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one promised on whose shoulders rests all salvation and all life and all claim to resurrection in the last day. I believe also that you are the Son of God. As we learn from chapter 5 in John, Calling oneself the Son of God is making oneself equal with the Father, God Almighty. This is why the Jews began to plot to kill him. You're the one coming into the world, meaning that he preexisted, even his own incarnation. He was in heaven, now he is in the world. 
this is the one that was promised. And this is why she says, anything that you ask of God, he'll do. I know that he will rise again at the last day. And he says, don't mix up. The promise of resurrection is being merely an event when you have the one who is the resurrection standing in front of you. Why Lazarus? We'll question this in the coming weeks a little bit more. But I want you to think about it as we digest it more. Is it because he was a personal friend of Jesus and that's it? That would seem a little bit bizarre and actually out of character for him. John includes Lazarus as an example to Christians reading his gospel. If you have come to salvation in Christ, you are also a friend of his. And even if the worst thing in our timeline should overtake you, and that is death itself, you are not left to your own devices to figure out how to endure it. You are not left to your own devices to figure out how to rise from the dead. He has you. It is a remarkable comfort to the church to include the story of Lazarus. Because herein we see Christ not abandoning his friend and making clear the reality of who he is. And that is what you should be seeing throughout all of this. Who he is, what he is capable of doing, and what he certainly will do at the last day. May I say, even before we get to the raising of Lazarus from the dead... What a rough day that would have been for him. Do you ever think about that? I mean, this was a wonderful thing for Martha and Mary to happen, but when Lazarus comes back, what did he just come back from? And then back here, and then he gets to die again some other time. Kind of a strange day for him uh, coming, out of the, coming out of the tomb. Uh, we'll talk about that when we get there, uh, because it's usually never told from Lazarus's perspective. But I imagine it would have been a very disappointing day for him. Um, good to see Jesus and his sisters again, but I won't give away. But we'll kind of talk about that when we get to it. Um, but at the end of all of this, the person of Christ, the focus of Christ, being present, the resurrection and the life, if God... Let me say, let me change that. Since God has his purpose to save his people, what if that means we pass through circumstances that we do not desire? Does that mean God's promises are called into question? By some of us sitting in the back seat being an annoying person, yes, sometimes, sometimes we try to do that, don't we? Why did this happen? I need to know so I can verify this. Either because I need to understand it or I've forgotten with age and experience. But at the end of all of this, how is it that we can understand that any of this works? It is not by working it out. It is the way it began. Trusting that he has it. And this is the one encouragement that if somebody is in your life and you are 
tasked at the moment with encouraging them in a great loss, give them this promise. The Lord of the universe does what is right and good. And even if you are experiencing some of the worst loss of your life, this is not the final chapter. Not only will resurrection surely happen for the people of God, but even that isn't the last chapter. Living with God in a new world and a new heaven is. And we will surely get there, though we pass through some of the thorniest of ways. I'll walk with you through it, but thats I cannot promise to alleviate them. I cannot make them go away. And I promise you this, time does not heal all wounds. It certainly doesn't. Sometimes it makes them worse. But just being there with one another and helping one another through it is one of our main responsibilities as Christians. Remind us, though the darkest of nights threaten to cloud our vision, the one whom we're traveling with and the one in whom, whose arms we die into will surely have his promises met. Not because he wants to do that alone, but because of who he is. And that's exactly where Martha goes with this. And I pray every one of us can say the same thing, that he is indeed the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. It is as true then as it is today. He is still the Christ. He is still the Son of God, and he is still coming into this world. And I pray we can take great solace in that, because it's not something to just get us through to be a little bit happier tomorrow. It is truly the hope of the Christian life. It is why faith is the background of all of these things, because it is God's work that does these things, not ours. And I pray that we can live in light of that. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for Martha here. And that in the midst of not knowing all the answers and not even knowing the events of the very next day, you can at least take solace in the reality that you will indeed raise your people to life again. We pray, Father, that that be the hope of our hearts and the delight of our minds. We thank you for all these things. We thank you that your word is ever-present with us and that Christ in his teachings his presence in the church to not forsake us even to the end of the age, and that your spirit is ever-present with us, sanctifying us and working in us that which is pleasing in your sight. Father, we are grateful for all these things and the works of your hands. May we become more grateful for them as the years go on. We pray in your son's name. Amen.